0: Well, good morning. good morning. Welcome to First Missionary Church. It feels good to say that this morning. It's such an honor to be here with you. It's actually a very surreal honor because uh, when I think about this church, I have really fond memories of growing up in this church. I remember as a little kid running through the hallways and my mom telling me, Rick, slow down, stop. I remember in this church coming to faith in Christ, uh, I remember in this church being discipled through all the various ministries that are going on in this church. And even in this church, I felt the call to pastoral ministry. So it's very weird, a good weird, to be here this morning with you all to be considered as your senior pastor. Um, I still care very much about this church, still care very much about the Burn community. It's really refreshing uh, seeing Amish outside go up and down in their buggies. That's a a sight I've missed being over in Lima and in various places. So um, it's good to be back. I want to show you a picture of our family. You can see it there, but um, let me introduce my family, too. My wife, Jamie, has been married 11 years, and then I have three kids, uh, Caleb, who's six, uh, Brooklyn, who's four there in the middle. Uh, Caleb's in kindergarten, Brooklyn's uh, in preschool, and then our sweet, Amelia, who is not feeling so well today. She is 18 months old, Uh, and just so you know, Caleb is not really that tall for a six-year-old. He's standing on something, and so... uh, (laughs) Some of you thought we need to get that kid signed up for basketball, but he's not that tall yet, so we'll get him there. So, If you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 16, Matthew 16, beginning at verse 13. There's a very famous passage. Jesus is going to ask his disciples a very crucial question. And I really like this passage because it helps sum up really what I want to be about as a pastor and what I want our church to be about as a church together. And if you're able to, would you stand for the reading of God's word? If you're not, that's okay. But if you're able, would you stand for the reading of God's word? you also see this on screen as well. So Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now in this moment that you would open our eyes to see amazing things from your word, open the eyes of our heart to see you and your Son, Jesus Christ, glorified. Father, convict us where we need convicted, and encourage us, Lord, where we need encouraged. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, since being back in Bern, I've been getting all sorts of questions like, Rick, if you're the senior pastor, are you going to do blank, right? It's a great question, and I always give a great answer, I think. I give a definite maybe, or we'll see. (laughs) Because honestly, I just don't know until I get to know people and, and until I get a sense of what FMC is about and doing. But there are some things I do know for sure that I want our ministry to be about, that I want my ministry and really our ministry to be about. In fact, if you look in your bulletin, if you're taking notes, I put my title as three glorious truths for our ministry because we're really in this together. This is certainly Jesus's church, but it's not my church or the staff's church. This is our church together. So let me list three glorious truths from this passage that will define my ministry and really our ministry together. So here's number one. I will be and I want FMC to be all about Jesus Christ. I will be and I want FMC to be all about Jesus Christ. And some of you are like, duh. But I just want to say it because it has to be so clear. <laughs> because if you look at verse 13 and following. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, and he's in a really interesting area because he asked a great question in an interesting area. This city is named after Caesar, thus Caesarea, and it's also named after King Herod, thus the Philippi. So it's a very political region. It's also a very uh, Gentile region where they worship a lot of pagan and foreign gods. So amidst all of that background, that political background, that religious background, Jesus asked this question, who do people say? The son of man is. Don't worry about all that political stuff, that religious stuff swirling around you disciples. Who do people say the son of man is? And the disciples give an interesting answer in verse 14. They say John the Baptist who prepared the way for Jesus. They say Elijah. They say guys like um, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I mean, it's very flattering to be compared to those guys. But all of those guys fall short when it comes to Jesus Christ. And in verse 15, Jesus asked a very crucial question, but who do you say that I am? What do you guys say? I certainly don't want to compare myself to Jesus by any means, but I felt that question a little bit since coming back to my hometown and my home church where people are asking, who is this Rick Schwartz guy? In fact, if you look up on screen, I put a couple pictures there how some of you may remember me that grew up in this church. (laughs) This is, uh, I think that was my second grade picture. And uh, it looks a lot like our son, Caleb. And that's my junior high picture. And really, if you're in junior high, God bless you. Man, that is a tough, tough time of life. You know, I had these huge glasses, acne. This was right before braces. So I feel like we should just stop and pray for all our junior hires right now. That's a tough, <laughs> tough time of life. But some of you may remember me in one of those stages, either as a preschool or a junior high. You can take, you can advance the slide. That'd be great. There we go. Perfect. All right. <laughs> Got to work on our signal there. Um, Some of you might remember in one of those forms growing up, some of you may not even have any clue who I am, which I think is great. You have a chance to start fresh with who I am. Some of you may know my family. Uh, The Schwartz name is very common. Um, I'd like to think I have more hair than them, but that's so you can be the judge of that. (laughs) Some of you might think I'm too young, which I get for sure. But whatever you think about me, none of that matters compared to what do you think about Jesus Christ this morning? If you're a non-believer, this is absolutely crucial. This will determine your eternal destiny. And even if you are a believer, you never get over this question, who is Jesus Christ? In fact, you answer that every single day based on the way you live, based on the choices you make. Every single day you're answering this question, who is Jesus? Peter gives the perfect answer in verse 16. He says, you are the Messiah, that's the Christ, God's anointed one. That's God's chosen one. Christ is not Jesus' last name, but it's a special title that that God gave Jesus to show that God chose him to save us and deliver us from our sin. In fact, if if you trace that theme of the Messiahship through the Bible, we see all through the Old Testament that all kinds of people are designated as chosen ones or messiahs, so to speak. You have priests like Aaron who were chosen by God to serve as a priest, a high priest. You have prophets like Moses who were chosen to serve as a prophet. You even have King David who was chosen to serve. But Moses and Aaron and all those guys, as great as they were, they were not nearly as great as Jesus Christ, the ultimate chosen one, the Messiah. In fact, I was thinking about this title, chosen one, and I got to thinking in culture just how much we use that kind of language for people. I mean, every two to four years when it's political season, it comes too frequently, right? Um, We start thinking of this candidate as that person. They are the chosen one, right? They are going to save us from whatever you think we need saved from as a society. I remember about 15 years ago, there was a Sports Illustrated magazine, and on the front, there was a certain basketball player named LeBron James, and it said, the chosen one, right? Now, that's a little silly, isn't it? We're calling LeBron James, the chosen one, the Messiah. But that's the kind of thing we do as a culture, right? Sports figures, politicians, actors and actresses. But none of them have anything on Jesus Christ. He is the son of the living God. He's the Messiah, God's special chosen one. So as we think about our ministry together, I want us to be so laser focused on Jesus. More than anything else, if people come to FMC, if they're around you all here at FMC, I want them to, to leave thinking, man, FMC, the people, they are about Jesus Christ. In fact, here's a, a helpful tip for you as you think about getting your life oriented on Jesus. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, this is some of my, one of my favorite passages. Jesus is talking to his disciples on the way to Emmaus right after his death and resurrection, and they don't know it's him. This is pretty amazing. And they're confused why the Messiah, Jesus, had to die. And it says this in verse 25. He said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And then beginning with Moses and all the prophets. So in other words, the Old Testament, that's all they had then. He explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning whom? What's it say? himself. So who is the Old Testament all about? You can answer that question. Who is the Old Testament all about? Jesus. Jesus. So when you're reading the Old Testament, even weird and obscure passages like Leviticus, you should be thinking, this is about the Messiah. This is about Jesus. This will help get your life oriented on Jesus every single day of your life. Or another tip I recommend as well, I saw in your book nook, which is a great place over there. You guys have the Jesus storybook Bible. You heard of that? Wonderful Bible. And there's a little tagline on there. It's a kid's Bible, and it says, Every single story whispers Jesus' name. My wife and I love reading that Bible to our kids. In fact, we learn a lot from it too. But as you read those Old Testament stories, each one ends with a connection to Jesus Christ. Friends, I know that we're only going to be saved, we're only going to change, we're only going to grow, we're only going to be sent out, we're only going to make a difference as if we're personally and as a church collectively all about Jesus. I mean, can you imagine if every single day of the week, this week, you woke up each day and you said, okay, today, yes, Monday morning, the alarm's going off, Woo! I'm gonna be about Jesus Christ today. Can you imagine if you were that way when you came to church and we gathered together and we said, I don't care what music they're playing or what they're doing, I'm gonna be about Jesus Christ today. Oh, how that would unite us and energize us and excite us when we are focused on Jesus Christ Everything else is just details. So that's just truth number one. Let's go to truth number two. So we said so far I want our ministry to be about Jesus Christ. The second truth from this passage is I want our ministry to have what I call big God theology. Big God theology. So in verse 16, Peter gives that wonderful confession and then in verse 17, listen to what Jesus says. He says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, or Bar-Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood or by your earthly father, but by my father in heaven. So do you hear what's going on here? This is, this is really important. If you need to slap yourself to stay awake for this point, do it, because this is really important. It took, it took, are you with me here? It took God's supernatural intervention for Peter to confess what he just confessed. In other words, Peter wasn't smart enough. Peter wasn't bright enough. Peter wasn't talented enough to grasp this. It took the supernatural intervention of God for Peter to confess that Jesus is the chosen one, God's specific one to save his people, and the son of the living God. And if you study the life of Peter, you're like, that's very true. (laughs) How many of you can relate to Peter? How many of you often speak before you think? How many of you are sitting next to someone that often speaks <laughs> before they think? Yeah. <laughs> you're just like Peter, right? I mean, Peter is not smart enough to grasp this, yet God was gracious enough to say, Peter, you're my man. I'm gonna reveal this to you, who Jesus Christ is. What's interesting as you keep reading in verses 21 and following, Jesus is going to tell Peter, hey, just so you know, I'm going to go to the cross, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And Peter's like, no way, Lord. And then Jesus says this, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, Peter. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. So he still had a little ways to go, but God was already at work in his heart, revealing who he is and, and, and who he was about. And did you know the same is true for us? If you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, I hate to break it to you, but none of us are smart enough to grasp it on our own. All of us are too thick-hearted or too thick-headed. All of us are too dead in our sin, Scripture says, to grasp this. It took God's supernatural intervention to open your eyes, to see the glory of Christ and Him crucified, for you to really understand that and believe in it and repent. This is what I'm talking when I talk about big God theology. We want to highlight God and what he's done to give him the glory and give him the credit. And scripture is full of all this kind of language. I wish I could go around and say, can you find me a passage in scripture that shows that it takes God's intervention for us to be saved? Let me show you just a few. Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 8, it says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of... God. It took God's intervention for you to believe. Or go to 2nd Timothy chapter 2 verse 25. Paul is writing to Timothy and says, "Opponents must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth." So, if you look at that verse, pop quiz question, who must grant us repentance? God. If you have repented of your sin, it's only cuz God first intervened and showed you that. Or if you go to this next one, this is one of my favorite verses in all of scripture, Acts 13, 48. It says, when the Gentiles heard this, that's the gospel, they were glad and honored the word of the Lord. And then get this, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. So from a human perspective, right, they believed, but who appointed them for eternal life? God. You know what I would love to see as we reach out to people with the gospel, as people come to faith in Christ? We can say that for sure, that's a great way to say it, but I I would like us to say, well, last night, all who were appointed for eternal life believed, because God did it. (laughs) This is what I'm talking about, having a big God, looking to him and what he's done. And I know that when I start talking this way, people often get a little bit uncomfortable because they say, well, Rick, what about free will? What about freedom? Freedom? I remember sitting down and choosing Christ, and I don't doubt that you chose and you believed and you had freedom to choose, but ultimately, at the end of the day, the one who gets the glory and credit for intervening in your life is God. By the way, that's another sermon series for another day on free will versus God's sovereignty, but we'll get there at some point, Lord willing. (laughs) But here in this passage and all through Scripture, we clearly see that we believe in a big God who is ultimately responsible for our salvation and for everything that happens and will happen. And my promise to you is that that I get up here week after week, Lord willing, is I will preach a big God. I will preach uncomfortable truths about God that are revealed in Scripture. Just recently, I took our church through 1 Corinthians, and man, there are so many uncomfortable truths in that book. Here's another tip. If you want your life to be not just about Jesus, but about God, and I know it goes together, when you're reading your Bible this week, do you know what the most important question is you can ask? Do you know what we often ask when we read our Bible? We often say, well, how does this passage apply to me? Now, by the way, that's a great question. You should ask that question. But what is the first and most ultimate question we can ask when we read scripture? The first question we should always be asking is, what does this tell us about God? Because we read scripture to know God, to understand God, to worship God, to be blown away by God. If your mind is not being blown away by God as you're reading Scripture, then you're probably not asking that question. As part of this emphasis, too, for our church, I not only want you just to know God, but I want you to delight in God. How many of you are here this morning and say, Rick, I would love to have joy in the Lord this morning? Yeah. Did you know that you're commanded to? That's not optional. Paul said it twice in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Psalm 37 says delight yourself in the Lord. That's not optional. I believe as we believe in a big God that helps us delight in him. Another way this helps us too, Lord willing, if we're called here and we preach a big God, one of the things that I try not to do in my sermons, I try not to give you like five things to do every Sunday because if you add up the math in that, how many Sundays are there in a year? About 52-ish, right? What is 52 times 5? A big number, 260-ish, right? So can you imagine if I gave you five things to do every Sunday, by the end of the year, I'd be giving you 260 things to do? I don't know about you, but as a parent of young children, that sounds horrible. (laughs) For most of us, that does too, right? But if we preach a big God, if we're about a big God here at FMC, I really do believe the rest will take care of itself. It'll humble us, it'll challenge us, it'll move us out of our comfort zone, It'll cause us to enjoy him. It'll it'll knock us off as the center of the universe. You know, it's so easy to think that we are in control and we're the center of the universe, isn't it? Every time I drive and somebody cuts me off, I act like I'm the center of the universe. (laughs) You do too, right? (laughs) But we're not. How freeing it is to believe in a big God so that we're not at the center of the universe. He is. Jesus told Peter, Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let's go to the third and final truth. So I said I want to be about Jesus Christ. That was the first one. And the second one is I want to have what? Big God theology, right? See a big God in scripture in our ministry here. The third truth I want to emphasize here today is that I will be, and I want FMC to be, a hopeful people that are optimistic. Positive, passionate, zealous, overly optimistic for the local church. You can translate that however you want in your notes, but Mm -hmm. basically, I want you to have a hopeful view for the local church. Now, I don't need to see a show of hands here, but how many of you have ever thought, man, if only the church did blank? (laughs) Of course, that never happens here, right? (laughs) I see this all the time on social media in conversations with people. There's always things to improve in the local church. Every single church has issues, right? But did you catch the kind of optimism that Jesus has for his church? Look at verse 18 and following. <coughs> you know, what's interesting. Peter tells Jesus who he is, and Jesus is like, uh-uh, Peter. I'm going to tell you who you are. <laughs> verse 18. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church And the gates of hell or Hades in your translation will not overcome it. Do you catch what Jesus says just in this one verse? First of all, he says it's his church, right? Not my church, your church. It's his church, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, Jesus is willing to attach himself to the local church with all of our issues and problems and challenges and opportunities. Jesus is like, yes, I'm claiming that. That's my church. But not only that, he says, I'm going to build it. I promise to build it. Man, I have found this so encouraging. We are coming from a church plant situation where the first couple years, it's like every week I'm like, are we going to survive? Every week, are we going to have people show up? Next month, are we going to make budget? Are we actually going to make a difference in people's lives? And let me tell you, we have seen firsthand in Lima, Ohio, not too far from here, that Jesus builds his church he does it. He is absolutely committed to his church. I mean, as you compare the church to any other organization, Jesus didn't claim any other organization as his. He didn't promise to build any other institution or organization. He promised to build what? His church. And so very simply, as we apply this, do you view the church as Jesus does? Do you have that kind of optimism, hopefulness, passion for the church? If you keep going in that verse, he doesn't just promise to build it, but he also promises incredible power. He says, the gates of hell shall not overcome the church. Now, I had to step back and think, what? The gates of hell will not overcome the church? The gates in this passage symbolize power and military might because back then, if your city wanted to be protected... You had to build a big gate. I mean, can you imagine building a big wall around the city of Bern to protect it? But that's the way it was back then. In order to advance against the city, you had to overcome their, their walls and their gates and take it siege, and sometimes it worked or not. But, but Jesus is saying, Hades or hell and death and everything that's wrapped up in that, and all of its might, the powers of hell and darkness, none of them will prevail against the church. <laughs> that's shocking. I mean, do you believe the church has that kind of supernatural power behind it? When you came to church this morning, were you like, yes, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church as we gather this morning? How many of you were thinking that this morning? Hmm. I know life happens, right? You're trying to drop off your kid, You're just trying to get here on time, right? But Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Jesus didn't say that about any other organization or people. Do you have that kind of optimistic view of the church that Jesus has here? I also want to draw your attention to verses 19 and 20. Jesus not only promises to build his church and promises supernatural power, but he also gives the local church, the people of God, a lot of authority. Because if you look at what he tells Peter, he says, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. And he's actually, Jesus is really funny, by the way. He's actually making a pun here. If you read the original Greek, Peter is petros, and the word rock is petra, and so Jesus is saying, Peter, you're a rock, and on this rock, that's you, Peter. I'm going to build my church. (laughs) By the way, I really love puns. They'll come out more and more, but it's a great form of humor. It's biblical. (laughs) This verse, to get serious for a moment, though, has often made us really uncomfortable because If if you've grown up Catholic or know Catholics, they've often taken this verse and said, well, this is becoming, Peter is now becoming the first Pope. There's this apostolic succession of authority through Peter. And I don't believe that, but I do think that Peter has a unique role that Jesus is emphasizing. Because if you read the book of Acts, we see that in in Acts 2 on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ. That's a pretty good day in ministry, (laughs) Or in Acts 8, he preaches to the Samaritans or he comes and helps them receive the Holy Spirit. That's a whole other sermon for another day. Acts 10, he preaches the gospel to the Gentiles. And so Jesus told Peter, I'm gonna give you these keys, Peter. The keys of the kingdom of heaven. You're gonna go in and preach the gospel and as you do, doors are gonna be opened for people. They're gonna believe in the gospel. They're gonna come into my kingdom because that's what keys do, right? They open, right? Or they can shut people out. By the way, I remember the first time I got keys from my dad when I was 16, right? Keys are a symbol of privilege and power and authority. When, when my dad gave me the keys for the first time and said, son, go do this errand for me. And I'm like, uh, by myself with the car. He's like, yes, you. I mean, that was, that was a rite of passage, right? That's what Jesus is telling Peter. Peter, take the keys. You're going to go preach the gospel. You're going to open the door of the kingdom to people as you do so. And he even tells Peter, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth Will be loosed in heaven. Now, these verses have been taken way out of context too. Sometimes people have used this as a sort of a name it and claim it theology, right? Well, I believe that this Ferrari is mine. I'm claiming it, so it's going to be claimed in heaven. But that's not true. Don't believe that. I encourage you not to think that. That's not what the text is saying. Instead, Jesus is telling Peter that as he uses the kingdom, those keys to the kingdom, He's gonna open the door to people and, and proclaim that these people are believers and as he does that on earth, heaven's gonna be behind him too, backing that up. Whatever you bind or forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven so if somebody is not a believer and you proclaim that, Peter, heaven's gonna agree with you. Whatever you loose on earth or permit on earth, I'm gonna allow in heaven. Heaven's gonna agree with you as you preach that gospel. You have that kind of authority, Peter. And even by the way, the grammar suggest that it should be um, whatever you loose on earth will have already been loosed in heaven whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. You know what's interesting As you keep reading uh, in Matthew this same language is used a little bit later, two chapters later. If you'll go ahead and go there on screen in Matthew 18, let me just read this. It says, if your brother sins against you go and tell everyone and burn about it. Wait, it doesn't say that, okay, sorry. Um, if your brother sins against you Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to what group of people? The church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile, and a tax collector. So there's these kind of steps when it comes to conflict where if your brother sins against you, not even if you sin against them, you've sin against them, but if they sin against you, you're to go to them one on one and address the issue. If it doesn't work, bring a godly brother or sister with you for step two, and you often repeat steps one and two multiple times. And then if that doesn't work, Jesus says, Tell it to the local people of God. And if they still don't repent or change, then we are declaring them a non believer. We are using those keys of the kingdom as the local church to declare that that person, because they're unrepentant and not having a soft heart or humble, they are not a believer. They are a Gentile or a tax collector. And then there's that verse. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Would you read that out loud with me? Go back one more time. Read this out loud with me. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So Jesus is now not just telling this to Peter in Matthew 18. He's telling this to all the disciples and thus to us as the assembled church of God. That we have a unique kind of authority that even if somebody is unrepentant, we can use those keys of the kingdom to say, hey, based on you not being repentant, we are declaring you a non-believer, sadly. We're declaring you a Gentile or a tax collector. And then it says in verse 19, very famous verse, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered in my name, this is in the context of church discipline, by the way, there am I among them. So even if you didn't understand all of what I just said, what Jesus is trying to tell Peter in Matthew 16, and thus us as a local church in Matthew 18, as he has given the local church, not only a promise to build it, and supernatural power that the gates of hell will not overcome it, but he's given the local church authority that he backs up in heaven, that if two or three agree on earth in my name, there I am among you as you preach the gospel and as you exercise church discipline. In other words, very simply, Jesus has a tremendously high view and value for the local church. And it's a very simple question this morning. Do you have that same view of the church that Jesus does? Or are you and I often quick to complain, well, the church isn't doing this, or they're not doing enough of this, or I wish the church did this, if only the church? I mean, I guarantee if all of us had this kind of view that Jesus had of the church, we would never suffer for volunteers in any local church. We would have such an optimistic, joyful view as we gather. We would deal with conflict like Matthew 18 talks about. We would love one another. We would love God and others so well. So here's what I want you to do in closing. I have a couple minutes left. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to pull out your phone or whatever you keep your calendar in. All right? Pull it out right now if you have it. Raise it up so I can see it, whether it's a book or a phone. All right? And here's what I want you to do. (coughs) As we think about these three truths that I talked about, being Jesus-centered, having a big God theology, and having a very optimistic view of the local church, here's what I want you to do. I want you to program into your phone to pray for FMC to be all those three things, all right? You can just simply put, pray for FMC. That's good enough. (laughs) Pray for it. Set a reminder for you to pray for FMC every single day, (laughs) Now, I know some of you are like, I'm not going to do that, Rick. I understand, but I really encourage you to do that. Write it down. And also pray for the church that we're coming from. It's called Crosspoint. Pray the same thing for them as well. We want them to be blessed as we potentially leave. I really do believe that the local church, under the authority of Christ, is the hope of the world. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage. Thank you that you chose to reveal such amazing things to guys like Peter, who often messed up. That gives us hope that we don't have to have it all together, but that you choose uh, weak and, and messed up people like ourselves to reveal the glorious truths of your gospel. So encourage people with this this morning, and I pray that you would help us to be a people that are all about you and your son, Jesus. Lord, help us too to have a, just a very optimistic view of the church, of what you have given the church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And Lord, if we need to repent of anything, help us to do that this morning. If we need to encourage someone, help us to do that. And may you get all the glory. And all God's people said, amen. Amen.